Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer, back from about a week of uh, vacation. Glad to be with you live again today over the noon hour. So many concerns across the country and the world these days, among them, of course, the lingering pandemic, the war between Russia and Ukraine, very much involving other nations, including ours, inflation and uh, heat records being smashed across all parts of the world. And we saw that in our country as well. But among the many threats, climate change connected to that stands out as an especially strong concern. So this hour, several perspectives on how uh, climate change is being discussed in rural parts of our state, and especially how to incentivize climate-smart agriculture. Are you and your work somehow connected to Iowa's ag economy? What are your views uh, about the challenges of climate, and uh, how have those views perhaps changed? What discussions are going on in your rural community? Join our conversation this hour as we gather these perspectives. one 780 You can also email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. In just a moment, uh, we'll be joined by a farmer from Clorinda. Um, that's in the southwest part of the state. Uh, he's using sustainable practices. But first, uh, let's get the perspective from Irene Dumaris. Uh, she is the executive director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light. Irene, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, for those who don't know your organization, start off perhaps by giving us a, a quick introduction to your organization and and how you're now connected with, um, uh, well, the challenge of, of climate. Yeah, well, Iowa Interfaith Power and Light has been a nonprofit in Iowa since about 2008. And our mission is to empower Iowans of faith and conscience to take bold and just action on the climate crisis. And so we're, like I said, a statewide org. We are the only faith-based climate org in the state. Um, mm-hmm. And how we fit in is uh, we have a program called Faith Farms and Climate. And we go into rural communities and we have conversations with farmers, ranchers, landowners about how they are called to into their vocation as a farmer because we really truly believe it's a vocation. Mm-hmm. Before we get to those discussions, I'm very interested in what you've discovered there, the takeaways from those discussions and what you have hoped to accomplish, what you have accomplished perhaps. But talk a little bit about, you know, uh, among the rural community, the, the climate anxiety that uh, we are all feeling. What is it like in those rural discussions? You know, it's more hopeful than I think um, I ever expected. So there is anxiety. But um, when you're in a group of farmers um, that are experts, they are in the land every day. They walk out. um, Some people have described it as they go out and they see church. Um, so their care and compassion really does come out in these conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a beautiful thing, and I'm so blessed to witness that. Tell us a little bit about how you set up these conversations. How many of you had uh, the, the basics here? Um, so we have uh, my former boss, Matt Russell. He is now the 
uh, state executive director of the Farm Service Agency in Iowa. Uh, he's a fifth generation Iowan farmer, but he uh, developed the questions. Um, but we've been so we've been running them since I think about 2018. But in the past year, uh, this year, we uh, had four conversations um, in four different communities. So we were in Washington County, Waverly, Storm Lake, and Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, and so we they're by invitation only because we really need to ground it in love and understanding and compassion for each other. These aren't debates. These are conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and so we might disagree on why the climate is changing, but we can agree that it is changing and we want to work together on climate smart agriculture practices. Yeah. By invitation only, how, how would you then select who comes to your conversations? Um, well, we have a really great list. Um, I asked Seth Watkins, who's on this, uh, who will yeah, be speaking to. We'll talk to. to him in just a moment. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Seth's one of my calls. Uh, but yeah, we have a great uh, between um, our partners, at actually the Center for Rural Affairs, Practical Farmers of Iowa, Iowa Learning Farms. Uh, we are able to reach out to our partners and ask for recommendations and then um, go from there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned questions. So what are the key questions you are having your groups discuss? So the key questions are, is how does faith um, or or God uh, call you into your vocation as a farmer? And so we're entering all these climate conversations with faith, and that's a very different avenue to have a discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, because for a lot of us, um, faith is the most intimate, authentic part of ourselves. And so to invite someone into that conversation uh, through that venue is is very powerful. And then we ask um, how does God or your faith call you into taking climate action? And then we go into, well, so what's holding you back and how can we move forward? Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, what, what have you been getting for answers? It's fascinating. Um, I, I suppose a, a wide range of, of answers. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, the political climate. Um, there's just trying to figure out the best practices and get them implemented on a farm. Um I don't have a farming background. I like to call myself a recovering coastal elite. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we hear wisdom from the people who are working the land, and we just want to iterate what they're saying. But the biggest thing we learn is, you know, farmers are natural innovators and problem solvers, and we know that they have the solutions to the climate crisis. Yeah. And so trying to figure out how to advocate for, um, to pay for eco-based services and to make sure that we are setting everybody up for success on this. Okay, let's invite Seth Watkins into our conversation this half hour. Seth is a farmer from southwest to Iowa, the community of uh, Clarinda. Uh, he uses sustainable practices. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be on. And you've been in, in one of these conversations uh, that has been uh, set up by the Iowa Faith uh, Interfaith and Power and Light. Yeah, I have. I mean, honestly, it was probably the first time I've been in a church in about seven or eight years, and it was I found it somewhat inspiring. Mm -hmm. So so tell us a little bit, first of all, about your farm. You have quite a bit of history, family history, connected with your farm, so we get acquainted with your operation there in southwest Iowa. Yeah, the, the farm I'm on was founded by my great-grandfather in 1848. Um, my, uh, my grandfather married my grandmother, who's Jesse Field Shambaugh, who a lot of people credit as a founder of 4-H, um, they married in the 1900s, um, still kept the farm intact, and I'm the fourth generation of my family 
raising cattle on it, and uh, we've just found that's the best fit for the kind of land we have. So mm-hmm. um, a neat history, and, and I always feel like pretty big responsibility to live up to that legacy, for lack of better words. Right. So let's talk about uh, your move to sustainability. Um, uh, when did it first become a concern of yours, Seth, uh, uh, sustainability, um, uh, climate smart practices? You know, I think for me, I mean, uh, there was always a, a lesson. I think like all farmers, we always have the lesson of caring for our land and, and doing our best. But mine happened in 1998. We'd gone through a horrible blizzard. And, you know, I'd gotten the cattle through and, and we made it out. But on, when I came out on the other side, I just, I, I said, I'm done. I'm done fighting Mother Nature. And I want to see what happens if I work with her. No. Uh, and at the time, that was contrary to some conventional wisdom. Um, you know, I decided to have my cows calve in, in mid-April instead of February and March and some of those things. But I just, I didn't like seeing the mud. I didn't like seeing the uh, the runoff in our streams, some of those things, and I changed. And um, honestly, I wasn't sure if it would work or not, but I just, I kind of wanted to do right by my cows and, and the land. And would that change I actually, my operation started to become more profitable. And uh, to be honest, it, I really couldn't figure out why right away. But mm-hmm. what it really had to do was a lot of the practices I'd implemented were starting to reduce my reliance on fossil fuel, whether it was through chemicals or fertilizer or bigger equipment and some of those things. And uh, basically, I was turning back to nature for some solutions to problems. Tell us about some of those specific practices. I'm sure there's quite a number of uh, farming ears perked up right now. What did you discover when uh, that actually uh, turns a profit? Well, I think one of them is, you know, for me as a livestock farmer, the first is, is understanding the impact of stress on our livestock and understanding that, you know, when you allow an animal to express its natural instincts, their stress levels go down. So, for example, my cows being able to calve on a on a warm spring green pasture versus, say, a cold, muddy lot, uh, she's not stressed out, and she feels better, and, and you see that animal health go up. Um, another practice that we brought in early on was uh, we started interseeding clover in our pastures instead of buying fertilizer. And, uh, you know, nature loves diversity. And what we saw, in addition to that improvement of forage quality and, and that reduction in cost for, for fertilizer, we saw our conception go up because the cattle had, they had more things to eat each time they took a bite, bite of grass. You know, I mm-hmm. think that that was one of my large, biggest lessons on the cattle side was that uh, monocultures really don't work well in the long run. We have to continue to come up with new solutions to deal with the problems that occur with them. But when we move to some simple practices of of maybe rotating our crops to three or even four species. And when we move to uh, keeping the land covered with cover crops and, and, and minimizing our tillage, minimizing our disruption, and, and, and practices like using the geospatial technology we have now to identify areas that really don't make sense, economic sense to farm, and putting in practices like prairie strips or tree planting projects or some of those uh, it creates immediate and disproportionate benefits. And, and combined, what those practices have done is they have reduced my need for fossil fuel. They have uh, reduced, so 
some of my chemical needs. They've definitely reduced some of my nitrogen fertilizer needs. You know, they're not a solve-all. We still have to use the science of agriculture to understand what our farms need. But slowly but surely, these are uh, reducing my reliance on these finite resources that cost more and more every year. Mm-hmm. And I think the real beauty, though, is at the same time, these practices are actually uh, putting carbon back in my soil in the form of, of increased soil organic matter. And that's what builds resilience to these extreme weather events we're seeing now due to climate change. So, you know, there's the immediate that we see in reducing a, fossil, a carbon footprint, but there's this uh, really neat side that gives me a lot of hope in that we're actually trying to start to pull that atmospheric carbon out of our air and back into our soil where it belongs. You know, I guess yep. the solution to a lot of the problems we saw, we see right now are like literally right below our feet. Yeah. If you've just joined us, Seth Watkins is with me this half hour. He's a farmer describing his sustainable farming practices and uh, how he thinks about farming differently than, well, I guess traditional farming over the last few decades by, by many in Iowa agriculture. Also with us, Irene Dumaris, uh, Executive Director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, and has uh, been this organization, nonprofit, sponsoring conversations in rural Iowa, many parts uh, called Faith Farming uh, Farms and Climate. And so we're discussing um, uh, how attitudes are changing in the rural part of our state and what's being done, how action is being spurred there. Um, back to you, Irene, after listening to the many practices uh, that Seth has been, uh, you know, put him, put his, uh, his thoughts in context with the conversations you've been having with other farmers. Um, uh, is he typical, atypical? Uh, what do you see there? What have you heard? Well, first for me, I feel like Seth has is turning to be a more typical um, example. Um, we do get a lot of people that are doing the practices, but there is such a, a momentum going into regenerative ag and climate smart agriculture, um, and people are just starting to take those steps in. Um, some are just dipping a toe in and some are just jumping right in. So I'm seeing in my conversations, but, you know, those are our invitation-only conversations. When we have a public event, it can be a little different, um, but I'm still seeing a lot of great practices uh, even beyond our small, intimate conversations. I wanted to talk with you both a little bit about language um, because we know this can be a hurdle, it can be an obstacle because... Everything in our world, in our nation, is politicized, highly politicized these days, and climate change is one of those words. I I guess I was surprised a year, a year and a half ago when talking to a farmer, he said, I don't use that term. Um, (laughs) Seth, talk a little bit about how climate change is a term, while accurate, laden um, with a baggage at this uh, politically divisive time. And, And what is your solution there? If you agree that that's probably something in some conversations you want to steer away from. Well, I, I've taken a little bit different tack. I, I, I think one, I, I turned to history. And an example I used a lot with my friends is talking about the Dust Bowl. And we know that was a man-made climate disaster, probably the worst in our country's history. Right. And... The neat thing about the Dust Bowl that I learned, and and many of us have learned, is the way we farm can either aggravate or alleviate not just, you know, problems of agriculture, but social problems, economic problems. And 
when farmers were able to work with the USDA, when the USDA got us the skills and the funding we needed to apply the practices we needed to our land and understand some of the things we we're also doing, you know, it's easy to get caught up and, and, and do things a certain way because that's what everyone else is doing. But with that help and that support, you know, farmers played a key role in leading us out of the Dust Bowl. Right. And I think what we see today, you know, in my opinion, climate change is the moonshot of our generation. And what we're seeing today is farmers are understanding that, you know, I think that, uh, I think the, uh, Climate Smart Commodities Act and, and parts of the Inflation Reduction Act um, are there because uh, our elected officials listen to farmers and they're seeing the things we need. So agriculture is always a public-private partnership. And I don't mind saying the word climate change around my friends, to be honest. I mean, yep. you know, I'm still their neighbor and I still help them. And, and uh, sometimes they might not like the feeling that maybe we caused something. I think that can... You know, no one wants to feel like they did something wrong. Uh, but I'm more focused on the fact that as, as farmers, we can be a big part of the solution. Uh, and, you know, we're the only industry that can sequester carbon and actually have it be beneficial to us. Irene, talk about that, how to address how to, what language we use as far as you're concerned in these discussions. I mean, it's deeply contextual, right? So um, a year ago, we changed our tagline from um, Bold and Just Action on the Climate uh, on climate change, the climate crisis. So um, we use climate crisis at Iowa IPL. But in these conversations, maybe, and yet, uh, we do change our language a little bit because we have to meet people where they're at because this is a crisis and we need all hands on deck. So using converse, in conversations, um, I will switch uh, around to climate smart agricultural practices, mm-hmm. climate solutions. Um, but being a faith group, we get to talk about creation care. We get to talk about stewardship. Um, and so those are things that I uh, firmly use a lot um, in our work. Yeah. Do, do you see then, Irene, when you tap in, approach it from a faith angle, do you see, do you witness changes in people's attitudes in their thinking, maybe an an aha sort of light bulb of faith (laughs) that appears in in some of the facial expressions? Yes, especially since it's such a contentious topic. Um, When someone, uh, I get stereotyped, right? I'm an environmentalist, I'm a green person. Um, So they just a lot of people assume that I will fight or not meet them where they're at. So mm-hmm. when um, I'm leading something and realize that there's friction with that language and that's a hindrance, that's yeah. a stumbling block, uh-huh. having ch- changing the language and meeting them where they're at, um, there is there is a connection there. There is a, oh, I'm being seen and they're more open to the conversation and they participate more fully. And mm-hmm. that's what is vital right now. Irene and Seth, we have about five more minutes, so less than five minutes. I want, I want to ask you both, uh, starting with you, Seth, what are the main obstacles you can identify as a practicing farmer, farmer practicing sustainable um, um, uh, approaches to agriculture? What are the main obstacles in the way of adoption of more climate-smart um, ag practices by more farmers? You know, the, directly on the ground, and, and I think it's, uh, it has to do a little bit with infrastructure and, and being able to market new crops. So, you know, I mentioned the need to move to multi-species crop rotations. That's going to involve uh, Iowa 
doing things to handle cereal grains, doing things to handle oil seeds, so community presses or community mills where we can start to add value to those crops. You know, we're really good at adding value to our corn, soy, swine, beef, poultry. Um, to diversify, we've got to have the markets and the access. And the other is an infrastructure issue, and I really see it, especially in southern Iowa, is, um, you know, the, the butts era of agriculture, get bigger, get out, destroyed a lot of the infrastructure for livestock. So we've lost a lot of fences, a lot of ponds. Um, we've got to work together to aggressively bring those back because grazing livestock is going to be a key component in making this work. And, uh, you know, we've got to bring those opportunities back for our young people bring some cattle back to the land, bring some, or I should say ruminants, might be sheep, might be goats, who knows, but we've got to get livestock back on the land as part of our rotation in making this work. So really it's infrastructure and, uh, and ways to market new crops within our state. Mm-hmm. Irene, your words on the, the obstacles to be overcome here. I think it's the uh, contentious, the polarization of the topic is one of the things that I run in a lot. Um, we are also working with rural faith leaders who are, I don't want to say afraid or scared, but there's something to be said about preaching about creation and being out there and bridging those gaps. Um, and so trying to resource everyone in rural communities from our clergy to our farmers to be equipped to have these difficult conversations or to meet people where they're at. Um, so one of the things of bridging that gap, and that's something that I'm very passionate about uh, is getting people back onto the land. Um, we did a field days uh, where we got congregations to go out and see regenerative egg practices in Waverly, um, in Webb, Iowa. So uh, just north of Storm Lake, we got a group of ELCA clergy out on a field to mm-hmm. have conversations um, about faith farms and climate and, you know, giving sermon illustrations. So we're just really invested in helping bridge that gap between um, what's going on in the fields and what's going on in the faith communities. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting approach. Seth, we have a few more seconds. Let me ask you, as a farmer with sustainable practices, how hopeful are you uh, having farmed for, for decades and gone through the changes that uh, you've seen? Oh, I, I think we can get this done. I, I'm, you know, Regardless of where someone is on on the you know their their feelings or polarization or some of that, these practices work and and they really do improve our bottom line and they really make our farms more resilient. So I'm seeing especially the younger farmers coming in more and more people trying to figure this out every day. And when we bring farmers together, one of the first things they say is they want to see more diversity on our landscape. So mm-hmm. we're going to get this done. Okay, I believe. I love that hopeful note to end this segment of our program. Seth Watkins, a farmer in uh, southwest Iowa. Irene Dumaris, uh, executive director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light. Irene and Seth, thank you, thank you so much for your thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, we'll have two other perspectives on how climate change is being discussed in rural Iowa, how to incentivize climate smart agriculture. Join our conversation, one 866 780 Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. 
Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. We're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, several perspectives on how climate challenges are being discussed in rural Iowa. Um, How do I incentivize climate-smart agricultural practices? In just a moment, uh, we'll have uh, Liz Garst join us. Now, there's a big name in agriculture and conservation here in Iowa, the Garst family. Uh, Liz Garst joining us in just a moment. Uh, Let's talk, first of all, with Jonathan Hiladik. He's the policy director uh, at the Center for Rural Affairs. Jonathan, welcome to our program. Hey, thank you for having me on today. Uh, you have a farming background as well. Uh, before we get to focus on your center, tell us a little bit about that background. You're grounding in the soil, so to speak. Uh, you're a cattle farmer. That's right. I grew up on a sixth generation farm here in far eastern Nebraska and uh, still do standard corn and soy. And then up here, about an hour northeast, I, I do livestock. So a lot of cattle, a lot of pigs, too many pigs. But uh, keeps me busy. <laughs> All right. So your Center for Rural Affairs, your policy director there, I looked on your website uh, under the About section just to comment. To you, you say, we are unapologetically rural. We stand up for the small family farmer and rancher, new business owner, and rural communities. Tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit and its mission. Well, that's right. What we want to be absolutely sure we do is stand up for the rural residents, rural community members that don't have a voice. They don't have a special interest. They don't have a big lobby behind them. But uh, we work on on identifying uh, shortfalls in policy and advancing policy outcomes that are going to make their life a little bit better. We're authentically rural. We talked a little bit about my background, and I can say for the vast majority of our staff, they live on a farm or they live in a small town. So we're really uh, Walking the walk as as well as talking the talk. And I think that's important when we have conversations like the one we're about to have today. Yeah. Tell us, uh, how do you approach at the Center for Rural Affairs um, attitudes towards um, climate change, uh, how how to change those attitudes, raise awareness, uh, incentivize better practices on our farms? Well, I think first and foremost, you want to remember that that farmers are businessmen or or businesswomen. You know, these are small businesses for the most part. So when you talk about what can be done to address climate change, it's important to understand that we need to recognize the economic reality they're facing. We need to recognize the markets that are available to them. We need to recognize the policy or regulatory framework that's in front of them. And so kind of within this reality, within these constraints, what can we do then to make things a little bit better? What can we do then to move the needle? And so at the center, we spend a lot of our time on the policy side. What can we do at the state or the federal level to make sure the policy framework is in place to make this possible? And I think it's something we can't lose sight of. Mm-hmm. So give, give us an example of what, what you mean by the policy that you're focused on and, and how that connects with farmers in their fields. Well, a really good example would be the Growing Climate Solutions Act at the federal level. You know, this is a bipartisan piece of legislation that 
passed the Senate in resounding numbers, and it has quite a bit of support in the House. And what's important here is it provides a regulatory framework for carbon markets. It's an exciting time to be in agriculture, and there are new markets springing up every day, and there's new technology springing up every day. But it's still a bit of a wild west. And so what you need to do is provide that regulatory framework to make sure this is something that farmers can understand, something that they can pursue, and that eventually also these companies that are managing the climate, the carbon credits, they're, they're going to be held accountable for business practices and they're going to be able to do it right in kind of an objective, measurable way. Uh, the, the farm bills coming up, the 2023 farm bills right around the corner, uh, we're working with uh, Senator John Thune and, and, and Representative Cindy Axney and uh, even Representative Feenstra on some ideas that could be marker bills to have in that farm bill that are going to, you know, understand the role of climate change and just, just provide some certainty and then if we can provide some incentives so farmers know what they're getting into and they know what tools are going to be available to them. Mm -hmm. In terms of policy directions, possible new policy, uh, where is the consensus for the majority of of farmers uh, these days? And and then point to the disagreements. Where is the agreement? Where are the disagreements? Well, honestly, I think a lot of it's about framing. So we understand that that climate is changing. We understand that weathered patterns are a lot different. We understand that we're seeing some new and potentially very concerning trends. And as a farmer, that impacts my bottom line. That makes me think differently about the crops I'm going to grow and how I'm going to grow them. And so when we when we approach this problem from that lens, the range of solutions is wide and broad. But if we approach this problem from the lens of the climate is changing, we need to change farming practices in order to prevent the climate from changing or to, to mm-hmm. maybe mitigate the worst impacts, that conversation is a little bit different, right? And so I think it's important for us to be practical and for us to be pragmatic and to come at it from from a standpoint that doesn't alienate every, anybody, that doesn't get into a conversation about ideals or anything along those lines, but just you know, practically solves a problem that's right in front of us. And I think when we talk in those terms, we can make a lot of progress. Yeah. I don't know if you heard our last half hour, but I was intrigued by a comment from a a farmer in southwest Iowa when he said what he's found effective is to talk to to farmers um, using the example of the Dust Bowl era in the 1930s when, you know, many areas were over-farmed. And way up here in the north in Iowa, even further north, we had, you know, dust from— uh, Oklahoma and Texas, uh, we had, uh, and 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 that so the impact that farming in that way had had, uh, and the the government came in and uh, eventually solved that, and we understood, you know, better ways to have sustainable farming. Do you think that's a direction that that helps out with these discussions? Well, I think there are some parallels. I think that, you know, when you look at the Dust Bowl, uh, farmers learned a lot of lessons, and then policymakers learned a lot of lessons, too. And so I don't, uh, I don't think that, uh, that, that this would work as a – I know this isn't what you or your guest was proposing, but I don't think we need to, to, to trick anybody into doing this or come up with a scare tactic. I think we just need to look at what the actual trends are, and then farmers have every incentive in the world to adapt, mm-hmm. and the markets have every incentive in the world to adapt, and then policymakers need to get their act together, and they need to make sure that the farmers and the markets can adapt. And I think as we deal with this, again, as a reality, and, and that says nothing of the technology on the horizon. Even over the past 10, 15 years, the technology in agriculture has been stunning. The hybrids now, 
that can adapt a little bit better, maybe maybe be a little bit more drought resistant than before, are really impressive. And it just seems that these keep rolling out all the time. And so I think that what you are seeing is an industry recognizing and changing a little bit. And I think it's going to be exciting to see where this goes in the future. Yeah. Um, you represent your organization, the Center for Rural Affairs, is really focused on small family farming, ranchers, um, uh, rural communities. Uh, we had the phrase used in the last half hour, go big or get out. How much of a problem is that, that we have such large-scale farming here, and do you have to use different approaches and, and policies uh, when we're talking about very large-scale farming? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And honestly, I think one one thing that, that I, I hope we see and I hope we continue to see is uh, new markets for smaller, more diversified farms. Even already, you're seeing uh, local elevators or maybe regional cooperatives provide incentives for when you want to bring in your small grains or bring in your non-GMO corn or non-GMO soybeans in a way that they probably weren't doing three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. And so you can kind of see the market begin to reward different types of farming. And also when you talk about the growing focus on good, fresh, local food, I know that's helping so many farmers that live kind of within an hour of, of, of maybe a metropolitan area or even just a larger city. And so uh, it is disappointing that, that that scale is rewarded in agriculture so much, but I think it's important to recognize that's true of almost any industry in the United States. And so I think our job as farmers is to look at where is that, uh, where's that market inefficiency? What can we identify and pursue? Because we think that's going to be an angle that's really going to make us some money and able to keep that farm in our family. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all looking for. Okay, several perspectives on incentivizing climate smart agriculture uh, here in the state. Uh, Jonathan Hladik is the policy director for the Center for Rural Affairs. Jonathan, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, check in with a couple of callers we have this hour before we move on to our final guest. Uh, Danielle is with us. Hi, Danielle. In uh, uh, Are you there? Hello, Danielle. Hello. Hello, Danielle. Welcome to the program. We don't have much time. What's on your mind? Quickly, please. Yes, um, sustainable agriculture. Uh, a solution is uh, phase-out subsidies for corn and beans. Grow real food, not commodities. There's a few people getting very rich on these big commodities. Um, not many of the family farmers who exist in Iowa. I'm tired of subsidizing a system that has made my well water undrinkable. Let's grow real food. California is drying up. We've got a waiting market for um, good locally grown food. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Danielle, uh, for your perspective. Take care. And let's finish up this hour um, by uh, talking with a name that uh, all in agriculture will recognize, uh, the Garst family name. Uh, Liz Garst joins us for the final uh, few minutes of our program. She's a a commercial farm manager and director of some family-owned banks. She's worked at the World Bank and served as a business manager of the Garst Seed Company, an oral historian. Also, <laughs> we can add uh, mention from her resume with, uh, you know, tracing the roots, uh, her family's deep roots in farming, uh, the community in Coon Rapids. And she serves on the board of directors of the White Rock Conservancy and as an advisor to the Iowa Nature Conservancy. And uh, if you don't know, the nonprofit White Rock Conservancy is about 1,200 acres um, returned to prairie thanks to that family. Um, also a family that has pioneered innovations of hybrid seeds and conservation practices for years. Liz Garst, welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me. We have a few minutes to talk here. Uh, uh, where do you believe rural Iowa is now when it comes to understanding and tackling the climate challenge? I think we have a long ways to go. Uh, the climate has changed a lot lately. Uh, we're seeing uh, heavy torrential rains that we never saw before, uh, seven inches in four-hour kind of rains which are hugely disruptive to agricultural soils. And we just had this morning a new report about the impact of uh, rain on snow. Winter erosion is getting to be a lot worse, too. And I think the uh, main solution uh, to harden our landscape against the, the, the changes that climate change, it, it's above all else cover crops. We need to protect our soils uh, during the winter, uh, we need to harden our landscape. I also think we're going to need a lot more terraces and waterways to protect ourselves from these heavy, heavy erosion events we're facing. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the main obstacles in facing us now in terms of having more of those in the agricultural community adopt practices that you just mentioned? I think we need to uh, help farmers better understand what is happening to their soils. Uh, uh, We've already lost about half the carbon that we had in our soil when we started farming it. And by the way, we've lost about half our soil. So we're already down to only a quarter of the carbon we started with in agricultural soils. And I think the main thing we have to do in order to... uh, Uh, help prevent future uh, climate change, but also what we have to do to keep eating is to protect the quarter of the soil or the quarter of of the carbon we started with, which we still have. We need to stop soil erosion uh, urgently. I imagine you have lots of conversations about this. Uh, Can you give us an example of of where the differences are, um, where people don't see eye to eye, and, and, and how we can learn from that, perhaps? Part of the problem is, is a short-term versus long-term perspective. Um, for example, a lot of people spend time arguing whether cover crops pay, whether you get the $30, $40 back in higher yields or lower costs. And I personally think that cover crops do pay, but it's ignoring the bigger issue, which is we're losing our soil. And without our soil, we just don't have agriculture. So... Um, I think it's trying to get people to keep their eye on the longer-term effects of what's going on. Uh, At current soil erosion rates, a little more than five tons per acre on average in the state of Iowa, that's the width of a dime of soil going away, and people can't see that. So we need to keep educating farmers on this is an ongoing problem. Uh, We're losing our soil, and we need to take measures to, to prevent that. Okay. Uh, Let's go to a couple callers and perhaps have uh, Liz Garst, our guest for this final portion of the program, react to what our callers are bringing to the fore. Mike is with us from uh, Dallas County. Welcome to the program, Mike. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I'm trying to be positive here. I'm real concerned about water quality and climate change and all sorts of things. But I was driving up uh, in Dallas County here over in Harry Stein's area, and I saw two big fields of cover crops. It looked just beautiful. 
And I think that's the case right across the state. We don't have enough. But where you see cover crops coming up in the fall or, you know, hanging on the winter or in the springtime, it just looks great to see that green on the landscape, especially if, you know, if people know that we're saving soil, we're growing, you know, a product that could be useful at times for grazing or harvesting, but also, you know, we're putting carbon in the ground. Uh, with those cover crops. Not much, but a little bit. It's a lot better than nothing. So but that's the way I want the to... The carbon pipeline thing bothers me. I just can't imagine I'm going through my land and tearing it up or going through my woods and tearing up my neighbor's uh, pattern okay. tiling. I don't think they could repair it. So I, I've got concerns there. But the positive thing is that when I see this cover crop on the ground, I, I really think that's the way to go. I think a lot of us can agree. Okay, that really is going to work. Mike, thanks for your input from uh, Dallas County. Liz, what do you have to say about Mike's comment? I agree. Uh, that's uh, cover crops are great, and uh, terraces and waterways are great too. Yeah, especially and, where we have hill country. And uh, Mike raised a, a point that we haven't touched on this hour. We've touched on it many times during this program. The three carbon pipelines proposed for the state that would facilitate carbon capture and storage. It's touted by industry and some government officials as a necessary thing to transition toward clean energy. Uh, but there are many opponents uh, as seeing it as untested and dangerous. What's your view, Liz? Um, I, I am I am opponent of the pipelines uh, as well. I I, th- I agree with the people who say we need all energy solutions. We need every source and kind of energy we've got, including ethanol. However, it's a question of where do our subsidies go? Uh, ethanol is an old-fashioned technology. It was originally billed as a transition technology. And I don't think we should be subsidizing old technologies to solve these problems. We should be putting our subsidies into to new efforts to uh, protect our energy future, not old ones. So I'm not against ethanol. I'm just against the huge subsidies that are involved in these pipelines for a technology that actually has a fairly short shelf life, in my opinion. Yeah. In this conversation, we've got a couple minutes left, uh, Liz Garst. What else do you have in your mind in this, in this area before we say goodbye? Uh, just to observe that I think there is some charlatanism going around on the subject of sinking carbon back in the ground. Uh, the the indigo and other similar efforts which are paying farmers to sink carbon in the ground. I've had a lot of trouble sinking carbon in the ground. I don't think it's that easy to do it. No-till for sure is not sufficient. Even no-till with cover crops, I suspect, is not really sinking much carbon in the ground. But holding our soil structure, uh, uh, cover crops, et cetera, are great for the structure of the soil helping it be more resilient and fertile and uh, hardened uh, against climate change. Uh, but the, the, just paying farmers to sink carbon, I'm skeptical that that's a real thing. Mm. I don't think they're really uh, sinking very much carbon. Okay. Uh, Liz, let's uh, say hello to Suzanne quickly before our hour ends. Uh, Suzanne, welcome to the program. Not much time, but what's on your mind? Oh, uh, mine was actually about that carbon sequestration. I agree with um, um, Elizabeth Garst there. And I also, there's, people are not talking about how much they want our data um, and that they're really not trading carbon, they're trading data. But um, 
yes, I believe that the only system that's been proven is animal agriculture in a um, rotational grazing system or grazing integrated with crops to actually increase carbon. And um, I think there needs to be more crops um, that have an earlier window like oats or wheat so that there can be more different kinds of um, cover crops that um, get to height, et cetera. And so that we need to push the markets for those alternatives so that we don't just have corn and soybeans because it's hard to get something planted besides winter rye and it doesn't get very tall. And so the carbon doesn't really amount to much. Okay, Suzanne, thanks for your view. Uh, we appreciate it. Liz Garst, the final word uh, to you. Our last half hour ended on a hopeful note. Uh, uh, can you end us uh, on a hopeful note, at least for, for this uh, hour, in the 30 seconds we I have think left? there are many, many solutions in agriculture. Uh, we've got the tools to protect our soils. We've got understanding of how our soils work. We've got what we need to make a better future. It's just a matter of getting the motivation systems in place so that people adopt the new practices. And in a few and words, and in a few words, what are those motivation systems mostly about, in your view? Um, in my opinion, we could get a long ways if we made government uh, subsidies contingent upon better environmental performance. Mm-hmm. But politically realistic, do you think that is? Uh, yes. I think it's different than regulation. Uh, We did this in the 85 Farm Bill. We offered a variety of uh, subsidies, the usual subsidies to farmers, but they had to stop uh, uh, losing uh, more than five tons an acre. And it was a system that was enforced with meaningful um, technologies. Uh, uh, There was a variety of options on how to meet the goal of uh, reducing erosion. It wasn't regulation. Nobody required farmers to do anything. But if they wanted subsidies from the taxpayer, they had to do a little better. Okay. We could do that again. We've run out of time. Thank you so much, Liz Garst, for joining us, commercial farm manager and director of family-owned banks. Uh, Liz, uh, take care. We appreciate your view this hour. Thank you for having me. Tomorrow on the program, I'll talk with U.S. Uh, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken will help you tune in. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network.